Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. Welcome everybody back to another episode of Animals to the Max. I am your host, Corbin Maxey. What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. We are currently, oh my goodness, in the third week of September. I I can't even believe it. I just this whole month is flying by, and there's just so much going on. Uh, kind of you know preparing the animals for the upcoming cooler weather. On a personal note, I'm also getting married in exactly two weeks. It's so weird. I can't believe I'm getting married. I still feel like I'm a kid, but I'm not. I'm almost 30 and I'm getting married. I'm growing up, folks. Anyway, so there's a lot of stuff kind of going on here, but as always, I'm going to continue to release new podcast content out. Now, uh, before we get on to today's guest, I encourage you to go on to iTunes and hit subscribe and rate the show. I would really appreciate it. Right now, we're at a five-star rating. So thank you, mom. Thank you, grandma. Thank you, Dad. No, just kidding. We have more ratings than that. But, uh, yeah, I was going to say, definitely, if you haven't rated the show, please go on and let me know what you think. Um, And also, you can find more information. Kind of follow me on my Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. All right. And so on today's show, we have a very, very interesting guest. I actually had such a good time talking to this guy. We have Richard, who is currently an undergraduate researcher at California State University. And what I love about Richard is this guy has so much experience out in the field. He's been all over the world, including the Galapagos Islands. And uh, he's been to Ecuador, where he actually came back with a bot fly in his back. That's right. I never thought I would interview someone who um, had an experience with a bot fly. Now, listen, if you don't know what a bot fly is, uh, please go on to Google. I will warn you, though, um, make sure you're not eating or driving heavy machinery because they look like a giant pimple. Anyway, so we discuss the bot fly that lived in Richard's back for two months. We also cover his extensive field work, including his work with sagebrush and also sage grouse. Now, he has a lot of experience and, you know, This is really inspirational, I think, just for anyone who ever wanted to pursue a career in the biological field, especially out in the field. And um, this is really good. He gives a lot of great advice. He has tons of experience. And I really, really hope you enjoy my interview with Richard. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm like a nervous wreck right now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I treat everything like a conversation, you know, with the podcast, and if there's something you say where you're just like, oh, crap, maybe I shouldn't do that, then no worries. Yeah, I I did a podcast with a friend of mine, and he had, like, a whole questionnaire that he wanted to go through, but you you didn't seem to do that. So I figured this would be more of a conversation than anything, so um, I like that. Yeah, we actually connected through a social media post, correct, that I posted, then you put a comment in. and Right, yeah, you you were, like, talking about, like, summer plans. Um, I follow you, uh, initially I started following you on Instagram, um, because I like following herpetological pages, and... uh, then I saw your Facebook, so I like started following that. And then you posted something about like what you've been doing over the summer, and I was like, "Well, I have this picture of me hanging out with some like pronghorn antelope, so I'll post that." Um, and you were like, "What?" <laughs> so um, led to this. Yeah, I love that picture. I love pronghorns, man. Yeah, um, I, f- I I was working out with uh, sage grouse. I guess we'll talk more about this later. But um, I was working with sage grouse out in eastern California, Nevada, 
And there would just always be pronghorn. If there weren't, like, wild horses or a feral mule, there would be pronghorn. And it was the time of year that the pronghorn were actually um, having babies. So we'd end up flushing, like, baby pronghorn. Like, I'd be walking and then just... Like, a baby pronghorn would shoot out between my legs. (laughs) And... (laughs) Uh, be running at like 30, 40 miles per hour. It was just out of this world. Aren't they one? Aren't they the second fastest land mammal? Yeah, I've heard that. Um, th- I've heard they've also evolved to uh, outrun American cheetahs, which are extinct since the Pleistocene. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so interesting, man. I still wish we had American cheetahs, but yeah, I yeah. mean Pleistocene rewilding, but that's a. Uh, that's a whole nother can of worms, I'm sure. Right, another <laughs> another can for another podcast. Well, I'm, <laughs> so you're a currently an undergraduate researcher, correct, at the California State University? Yeah, so I attend California State University Northridge. If your listeners don't know, that's in Los Angeles. Um, so yeah, I study uh, ecology and evolution, um, and my minor is in geographical information uh, systems, GIS, uh, map making. Um, I've been told by a lot of people that maps are kind of like the direction where ecology is going into, especially from a management perspective, conservation, which is where my passion is. Mm-hmm. Um, my research is in dendrochronology of sagebrush, um, which a lot of people don't know that you can do dendrochronology on. Yeah, uh, yeah. Dendrochronology <laughs> is uh, studying growth rings in like typically trees. So you'll study, uh, you'll measure the widths in tree rings and be able to age a sample of tree that way. Um, What I do is in sagebrush, uh, the system that me and my PI are primarily interested in. And we're studying a population of sagebrush, which is going through a decrease in Owens Valley, uh, which is where Los Angeles gets its water from. Um, And there's like a whole nother can of worms uh, going into like large cities taking the water of small municipalities and areas. But um, so we're studying how uh, water levels are dropping and how that's affecting the sagebrush at a physiological level and seeing if we can map out when the sagebrush are dying. Wow. Uh, through the tree rings, yeah. Richard, we need to we need to rewind, man. I mean, did you grow up? Because people ask me, Corbin, how'd you get your start in animals? And I had this whole spiel, like you know, ever since I was a kid, I've loved animals. Did you grow up saying, ever since I was a kid, I love sagebrush or tree rings? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I I started out an animal person. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I still consider myself kind of an animal person. I just like studying animals. Uh, from a conservation perspective through plants because animals need plants to survive. Um, But I grew up, like, with dogs in my house, and I have a pet tortoise, a sulcata. Oh, nice. Uh, Yeah. um, I just love being around animals. And uh, I was a dog groomer for a few years until I decided I wanted to get back into academia. And uh, I did. And I'm kind of a non-traditional college student, like, a little older than some of my classmates. Um... But, uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. Oh, wow. You don't look that old at all. I thought you were, like, maybe mid-20s, early yeah, 20s. 28, but, yeah. 20, oh, my God, I'm older than you, 29. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you went in, and, by the way, your resume, dude, well, thank you for this email, by the way. This is all my yeah. research I've been doing on you. But you have quite the, the resume just with your research. And so what was the first, I guess, research project that you got involved in once you hit university? Um. Kind of rewinding something I didn't tell you about. I was doing restoration work with Upper Bay in Newport Beach. 
um, doing like kind of invasive species removal and just a little bit. And that kind of gave me a taste for um, what ecology could be for me going into the field. Um, my very first undergraduate like assistant position was helping out a grad student do uh, uh, working with wood rats, which are native rats to North America. Um, they build these like really cool middens out of like twigs and stuff that can be like sometimes like hundreds of pounds. Um, people might know them as like pack rats. Oh, okay, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, um, they're in the genus Neotoma. But um, so what this uh, grad student was looking at was uh, their uh, stress response uh, to the threat of predation. So we'd use bobcat urine to elicit a predator response, and then we'd measure how they would, uh, how they were, uh, they're giving up density, which is kind of a way to show like how much food they're willing to give up because of that stress. Um, so we did that for, I mean, that was me waking up at like five o'clock in the morning to get out there before sunrise and then um, catching rodents with rat traps, like live, everything was live. Um, and it was just a lot of work, but I loved it. I didn't get paid. I just got stuff on my resume. And I every undergrad that I come in contact with, I'm like, just help out any graduate student you can meet. It will be so helpful to your career. And, uh, yeah, so I did that. I loved it. Um, and that's really cool, too. I mean, because I'm going to be honest with you, Richard. I mean, getting into the field or, you know, at Boise State doing research, you know, myself, I think if I first found out, man, I'm going to be helping someone with rats, I would be a little disappointed. Was that kind of how you felt until you got actually out into the field? I, I, I'm weird. I don't know. Like when you like, I grew up with having rats as pets and like weird animals as pets, and just any contact at all. Like not only in nature and like hiking, um, but like with animals, it just excited me. Um, I, I would say no. I, I totally loved it. Uh, <laughs> waking up at five o'clock was a little. Um, no, I woke up at like four. Who am I kidding? Um, like being up at five o'clock was a little bit of an adjustment for me. Mm-hmm. And typically people that want to work with mammals or like um, in wildlife, they have pretty wonky hours. Um, so that was a wake up call, literally. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it, you hear so often from young people like, I want to work with animals. I want to work with animals. But what does that really mean? And they really have to. They really have to understand the daily task of whether it's husbandry or research or um, field work. What that. What on a day to day level that actually entails. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got that experience, and I loved it. Oh, that's great! And and I, yeah. this is just a complete side note. Rats make excellent pets. I used to have them as a kid too, dude. Yeah. No, they're really intelligent. They, they, unfortunately, they only live like a year or two. But oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> it was the saddest thing. I had one that lived in my room. I'm being serious. Really? His name was Martin, and you would call him. He would come hopping like a kangaroo. Is the most insane thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was horrible though. They only live a couple years and then they're gone. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then so so what happens after this? So after you help out with the dusky, let's see, footed wood rats in Los Angeles, where does your journey take you, Richard? Um. So I uh, I had a kind of habit of pestering my professors via email just like hey what opportunities do you have what do you think about this scholarship what do you think about this grant and uh my professor emailed me back like hey like i got this email about an under um undergraduate uh research grant why don't you and i apply for it i don't think we'll get it but let's try 
Uh, and it was her sagebrush. And she's like, I know you're not a plant person, but I'm hoping to convert you. So uh, let's try it. So she and I apply for it. Um, we get it. And that entails me going out to Yellowstone National Park and uh, joining the North American um, Dendro Ecological Field Week. It's a mouthful. Oh, my God. Uh, what a mouthful, dude. Try to say yeah. that like ten times. Uh, NADAF for short, um, which is a field week to basically like – push people into the field of dendrochronology at a really fast pace and then the also the benefit of you being at yellowstone national park which is really beautiful uh so i got firsthand uh experience doing research with trees and coring and uh it was incredible i come back to los angeles and start my own research uh took trips field trips out to owens valley to collect my samples and then I do my lab work in this lab where I'm giving this interview right now. I can show you one of my samples. I know your listeners won't be able to see it, but um, wow, yeah, I'm sure you're like in the northern United States, so you've probably seen sagebrush before, Dude, right? I have too much sagebrush. Yeah, <laughs> like, um, I... but no one ever realizes how beautiful it is once it's yes. cut and polished, and and it all, is. Yep. Yeah, it's a spectacular-looking wood. Um, and and, and, and so, that, that, sorry, but that smell. You know what I mean? I yeah. love that smell. Yeah, it just really reminds me of the West. Like, when I think of the, what the West smells like, I think of just a really rustic sagebrush kind of smell. Um, but so that was my experience with, like, more plants. But um, after that, uh, I kind of wanted more field experience. So I uh, tagged along the um, – our, our school has like a uh, tropical biology program, which uh, was definitely up my alley. So I went along with that. Um, that was about two to three months in Ecuador um, where we had to design our own research. So the research projects that I did was looking at uh, bait preference for rodents in uh, Ecuador as well as um, – I looked at biodiversity of harvestmen. They're like not quite quite um, spiders. They're daddy longlegs is yeah. another common for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, more closely related like scorpions. But um, so I looked at biodiversity with them and see saw if I could correlate it with uh, dry leaf litter mass, which is pretty popular in tropical ecology as an indicator for you know either biodiversity or maybe some phenotypic trait. Um, it didn't end up as well as I expected, which is like pretty normal for science, but just the experience of like being out in the Ecuadorian rainforest in the oh. Andes, I got to visit the Galapagos. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. Let's stop there. Yeah. How was that? It was incredible. Um, the Galapagos was more of a vacation. Um, everything else was like just hardcore field work. Uh -huh. Um, and, but the Galapagos, it, it, like, if anyone is interested in ecology and evolution, it's expensive, but there's, if you can get out there, there's people there that need research assistance, there's people out there that need help with controlling invasive species, um, the opportunities out there for people to either help out or get involved in the science are almost limitless. So um, I definitely, if, if, if ecology and evolution is your thing, definitely suggest looking into the Galapagos and some of the opportunities that are available for, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I could hold in my excitement if I, when I saw my first marine iguana. I would freak out. I would, oh, oh my gosh. God. Yeah, they're really cool. Like, you know how they just, like, this, this salt just, like, comes out of their nostrils. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the giant tortoises, too. Like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, unfortunately, a, a lot of, or perhaps fortunately that we're aware of this, a lot of work does need done on the islands. I mean, so much is being done with the, you know, the goats that are on the various islands and removing species like pigs and cats. Um, I guess the next step that um, they're looking at is removing invasive plant species, which is still like a gigantic obstacle in its own. Um, but there's a lot of people working really hard at doing that to protect, you know, a, a, a lot of times it's the reptiles that are most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's just so fascinating. Do they have a problem with barn owls being invasive there too? Barn owls. Not that I'm aware of. They have a native owl species that it's actually, uh, we tried seeing it on one of the islands, um, but we didn't end up getting to see it. And it's like partly diurnal. Um, I don't, I haven't heard of invasive barn owl. That, I mean, that could be a thing. That's so. I, yeah, I was just curious. I did work in the Seychelles in the Indian Ocean, which our professor always compared the ecology and just evolution of species towards kind of the Galapagos. And so I just was curious because they have a really bad problem with the barn owls there just being invasive and wiping out really you know important endemic species. Yeah, that, that's those the islands with the Adadabra yep. tortoise. Yep. Right? Yeah, Adadabras, dude. Oh man, yeah. you should have you seen my Seychelles video? No, I'll, you should I'll check it out. Oh, yeah. Dude, I was so excited, so excited to see those giant tortoises. But anyway, back on to you. So, so you're so you're doing that in Ecuador. You wrote in your email you brought back a bot fly. <laughs> yeah, this actually got me on the uh, the top page of Reddit because I actually posted this on on a, a subreddit called WTF, and actually got me like. A, one hundred and sixty thousand views or something. What? On the <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I didn't know what it was. I thought I got um, skin leishmaniasis, which is a common uh, parasite for researchers to get that work in the tropics. Um, it's like related to malaria. So my doctor and I went under the presumption that that's what I had. Um, two weeks after I got back from Ecuador, being the you know, hard worker I am, I'm like, hey, I have to go work with USGS studying greater sage grouse. Um, so I have to leave no matter what my diagnosis is. My doctor's like, can you please not leave? Can you please stay in Los Angeles and let's work on this? And um, so I put my biology career first and left to Nevada, Northern California to work with greater sage grouse. So the whole time I'm doing this, I'm going through at least for the first like few weeks I was going through the pains of what I thought was, you know, some sort of like thing on my back. Um, and eventually I had to tell my crew lead who was pretty, who's pretty upset, but he just wanted me to get it handled with. Um, but obviously continue doing my field work, which was in of itself pretty strenuous, like working outdoors, like 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day in the hot Nevada sun. Um, Can we go? Yeah. Can we back up a really quick? I mean, because <laughs> just just for that, we could do the whole episode on the on this bot fly. What is a bot fly for listeners maybe who are living underneath a rock or have never seen those disgusting oh, sure. videos on Facebook and oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, and by the way, I've never seen one of those videos either. My mom tried sending me a million of them, but I just uh, would to look at any of them, dude. Um, yeah, I can't even. Um, but a bot fly. So um, when I was working in Ecuador, I actually would see a lot of them on like howler monkeys. Um, they're pretty common on other primates. Um, the the bot fly that humans can get is called the human bot fly, and what they do is they attack a mosquito, 
and they lay the eggs on the mosquito, and the mosquito then um, does what it does. It bites you, and the eggs actually trickle down from the mosquito onto your wound, and then that's where the, the egg hatches. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, this is great. I just hope no one's, like, eating dinner or, you know, cereal listening. Right. To no, this is great. Let's this get is, gross. This is really, but this is really the life of a field biologist. If it's not this, it's skin leishmaniasis, it's malaria, it's it's hay fever. It's there's. I mean, just the amount of things you can get from rodents is zoonotic diseases. It's just it's just such a common thing that you know even undergraduate researchers a lot of time that are giving their time they're volunteering they're doing things for minimum wage they, they should be conscientious of you know. Um, so that's kind of what I hope my experience speaks to. Uh, but at the same time, so anyhow, uh, so this the thing uh, lives inside of your skin, um, kind of like a butterfly. And I know it's <laughs> kind of cruel that I compare it to a butterfly, but it has a larval stage and then a pupa stage and then an adult stage. So three different stages of its uh, life cycle. Um, it the larval stage is within its host and the pupa stage, what happens is it leaves the host and, and goes into the soil and in the Ecuadorian rainforest, it would be in the soil in the rainforest. And then after a, few, a month or so of being kind of this inconspicuous Brown, like hard looking thing, an adult bot fly would emerge. And apparently the adults are beautiful, like full of color and their eyes are like really bright colors and just interesting looking hair kind of structures all over them. And, um, I know, I know your, your, your mouth is a, no, this is, I, I just have never talked to some, I mean, I've only seen this online or I've seen it, I think on animal planet too. This is so fascinating to me. I'm just like, yeah. I, I just, it's like you you hear this where people that get bit by sharks and they like they're just so cool they're like I have nothing but respect for the shark like or they get bit by like a crocodile and they're like you know the they des- they demand respect they're they're fearsome creatures like don't kill the crocodile I I kind of feel the same way about the botfly like I have nothing for but respect for how cool I mean the experience was painful like. It would. I'd feel it about a few times a day, three oh. or four times a day, in my back, and I felt like someone was stabbing me. Um, and I've heard entomologists describe it as like painless because they emit some sort of pain-killing um, chemical. But I didn't feel that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that's and, a bunch of crap. Like, no, it like hurts yeah. really bad. And uh, eventually, it just came out, and then I found it in my bed. And I didn't know what the pupa was, so I have some entomologist friends on Facebook, so I sent them pictures, and they're like, do you, do you work with livestock? And I'm like, oh, no, I work with birds, like big birds, sage grouse. And they're like, oh, well, what was the last country you were in? And I'm like, Ecuador. And they're like, yeah, you got a bot fly. And so I took it to the California Department of Health, or whatever the acronym is. Um, they had never seen anything like it. They wanted it. And I said, no, I think I'm going to give it to my university. Because, <laughs> uh, of course, I emailed a bunch of my professors, and all of them were like, bring it back to CSUN. We, like, really want this specimen. Um, because you can't bring it. We didn't have the – we didn't – how do you say this? We didn't have the permitting to be able to bring any specimens from Ecuador back to Los Angeles. But 
a bot fly is like one of the ways you can get around that because you have no option but to bring it back to Los Angeles. <laughs> um, so our natural histories collection collections was just really excited about it. So um, I mean, technically, so it's now sitting in a it's now sitting in a jar of alcohol in our, uh, our collections. Did you immediately put it in a jar of alcohol or? Uh, no, I tried hatching it into an adult. <laughs> Um, but yeah. unfortunately, the Nevada sun was not very forgiving, and it, it, it did not turn into an adult. So it's still a, it's still in its pupa stage. Pupa stage. And so, could you feel it actually moving around? Yes. In your. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that at the time, but yes, that's what that sensation was. Was it like this big? Uh, did it look like a big pimple that needed to be popped? Um, it looks like an open thing of flesh like about the size of a dime maybe okay of like yeah it's just really gross yeah but i never like i never wanted to see the wound myself so i never got a mirror and did that whole thing like i had other people look at it like my partner would look at it like god bless his soul like um (laughs) so i mean i just um yeah and i was just so busy working like i was just every single day doing hardcore field work Radio telemetry, like habitat analysis, just my, my mind was on the job unless for like the 15 minutes per day that it hurt. And I would just kind of concentrate on the pain, think about it, and then move on to my next task. Man, so, you deserve a medal, yeah. dude. That is a hard <laughs> – that is an awesome biology – I mean that is a that is a great undergrad research story. I mean that is that that's the best one I've ever heard. But, but, it's, but it, it really is something that's – I, I wouldn't say it's – I'd say that thing is not common, but, like, the fact that we – what we're doing as undergraduate biologists, um, it's risky. You know, you're hiking in these really desolate locations. Like, I mean, my, my car has gotten stuck in a dry riverbed, and I've just been in the middle of nowhere. Um, I mean, but I'm not alone. Or, like, you know, you go hiking, and you you have a misstep, and your ankle breaks. Like – like I said, we're getting paid pretty low wages. Um, you know, maybe health insurance isn't something we're, we we are thinking about, but we should be thinking about. <laughs> um, it's just important that people that are interested in biology be cognitive that we're, we're in a – a lot of us are in a risky field as field biologists. I'd say once you're in the lab, it's a little safer. But even then, like, there's risk around the lab. I mean, you have to be aware of. So. Oh, yeah. And I don't want to, like, persuade anyone from not wanting to become a scientist or a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> no, do it. Field biology is awesome. Okay, Any so, of your listeners are on the fence. Okay. Yeah. So back on to the bot fly. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how long was it, I guess, in in your back? You said two or three? Right. I don't know. I mean, honestly, because at the point I realized I had it had been maybe – um, a few weeks left in my Ecuadorian research. Um, so if I had to throw out a number, I'd say like a month and a half or to two months. Um, but I, I could be wrong. Um, just I don't know the, the exact dates because I don't know when it started. And then one, um, I have theories, but... And then one day you just, I mean, the pain's gone and you notice this little pupa-type cocoon. Right. About an inch long. A pupa about an inch long in my oh bed. Oh, my God. I know. Yeah. That is so cool. Um, 
Yeah, I was uh, in when I was working with USGS. We were living in trailers, so there was no. What I thought would happen was it, the trailer got so cold that it decided to leave. Um, but then I had an entomologist friend um, let me know. No, it was just done. It, it, it had nothing to do with the external environment of like where you were. It was just done feeding on you. And I'm like, okay, cool. Oh so it just, God. yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of sad it didn't live and that it didn't like, because we would have euthanized it if it turned into an adult. But because um, the, the biology department here doesn't have an adult and we, we still want an adult. <laughs> That was, that was always so hard in, in um, entomology at Boise State when you would find like a beautiful monarch butterfly or just like this beautiful insect. And then you'd have to euthanize it because you'd have to put it in the collection and stuff like that. So, Right. Yeah. Um, and, and they're so pretty. I mean, it, and it's, it feels weird to say that about something so heinous. But um, they are. I mean, if you Google... Google correctly. Okay, I have to. I have to. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now because I've only uh, seen the nasty one coming out of the girl's forehead, and it just pops like a. Oh gosh! But yeah, yeah the, the adults have like really pretty colors and. Um, uh, bot fly. It, well, I would say adult. Adult. <laughs> A bot fly and human bot fly. <laughs> adult. Okay, you're gonna have to show me a picture of that, which that would be awesome. Okay. Yeah, no, um, I have one on my Instagram, um, a wandering ecologist, um, a underscore wandering underscore ecologist. Um, I actually have a picture of it on, like, the day I discovered it on the bed. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. It almost, it, very similar, almost kind of looks like a bee. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously yeah. not too no, similar. No, 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 definitely. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. similar. Yeah. Um, the, the, another thing that comes to mind, I think they're called tenid flies that look like they kind of like covered in hair, kind of similar. Um, just really pretty in appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, which I know a lot of non zoological people might find odd to be calling a fly pretty or beautiful, but um, they are. I don't know. They're unique looking, definitely. I think so. And I'll tell you what, entomology is probably one of the favorite courses I've ever took at, at Boise State. I loved it because, you know what I mean? You learn so much. Yeah, I've never taken it before, and I, it, which is weird because I love, love, love arthropods, but I've just, I've never taken it. Like, I, I have a pet scorpion I'm sitting next to right now. I have a bunch of my tarantula and scorpion samples. Like, Oh, my God, that's so cool. Can I tell you, yeah. I don't think I've ever even said this publicly, but our professor, they had giant Madagascar hissing cockroaches in the uh-huh. lab and they wanted to get rid of them so they they euthanized them and then he passed each cockroach out to each classmate because we all had to put together um i don't know insect display specimen boards or you know whatever like for our insect collection anyway and you have to use pins and you know you're very familiar with this anyway as the students and we were pinning the cockroaches we realized they were not fully euthanized and they were all still alive Oh wow! It was insane. It was like That's unfortunate. Oh my gosh! It was just yeah, crazy experience. But uh, yeah. Anyway, very very interesting course. Yeah, I I, I think it's important as like um, as entomologists or fanciers of the like the hobby that people be like as ethical as possible. I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, just because they're arthropods doesn't mean that they don't have. 
I don't know, so, something akin to pain or, oh, you know, and, that, and that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, but, and I'm sorry, uh, I didn't mean to, like, depress you. I think I just saw a tear come out of your eye. <laughs> I don't think my right, perfect... No, I know. <laughs> what was me thinking of the poor bot fly that didn't make it into adulthood? I know, and then I'm like, let me tell you this other great uplifting story. Uh... <laughs> Everyone always does that. Like, I open up my phone and I have a message and it's a dead spider. And someone's like, hey, Richard, can you ID this spider? And I'm like, you know, I would have really loved to see that picture if the spider was alive. But okay, let me work at this. <laughs> uh, it's like, I what did I? I told my boss recently because he he told me that story. He's like, what if I sent you this a picture of a you know dead spider or whatever? And I'm like, it's like, you, you, like I tell you, I'm really into like Siberian huskies, and the next thing you show me is a dead dog. Like I don't want to see that. Like, I'm just really passionate about spiders, and then you're like, oh, well, here's something you love a lot, but dead. Like, here you go. Oh, man. I oh, I get it I, all the time. Dude, I have done some shows in some ho-dunk areas around this country, and I've heard the this craziest story. I mean, you know, like with reptiles and stuff. And, oh, rattlesnakes. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, hear, I see that on the herpetological, like, forums all the time. Someone will be like, can you ID this snake? And it doesn't have a head. And it's like, oh. Oh my gosh! Like these are people that are passionate about snakes, and you're 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 showing them something you did that was abusive to the snake itself. Um, yeah, I can't imagine if someone that's so passionate about reptiles, how that must feel. Or just animals. Yeah, I've been doing it for so long, though. You just get used to. It. And I think we look a lot of it as like ignorant. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know. Is there an excuse for it though? Really? You kind of right, right. It, uh, no, there's not. And. It, you know, it just it, it's advocacy on the on behalf of ethical treatment of animals. Um, yeah. Perhaps not like too far towards like certain groups that should go unnamed, but like in in a reasonable way that makes people that are like into husbandry and into like animal research like look as like because we care about what we do a lot and we care about the animals a lot. And I think it's important to engage the public in that kind of discourse. Man, we just went on a complete rabbit hole from the bot fly. <laughs> I know. I just can't listen to like an etymological story about a bunch of cockroaches and not shut, like you said, shed a tear. I'm so sorry. Uh, I can take this out. That was a, I didn't even. I just yeah. Anyway. No, no, no. I think that's, it, that's cool. Um, but yeah. So, um, so the. Um, did you want to continue with them? Yes, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, do did, did we have any closing thoughts for the bot fly? <laughs> um, I'm just really happy that students will be able to see the bot fly and be able to um, appreciate it for all its weirdness in a specimen jar. And, um, and it's part of, like, a bigger collection because not only – this natural collection, uh, natural history collection, is also tied in with a network of other natural history collections. So potentially, this could be a part of research one day. So Dude, I love that idea. I love that, and that's one heck of a story, man. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, heck of a story. I, I, someone told me it's like field bio cred, like like. Dude, yeah, like you get like a license. <laughs> Dude, you get you get like. Yeah, you get several, you know, creds for that. that is, that's that's I don't even have a story like that. I was almost killed. Right. I was almost killed by hippos, but not as bad as having a bot fly live in my back for a few months. So, yeah, pretty interesting there. But yeah. back on to this. So after the uh, after your experience with the bot fly, <laughs> where does or, your career or, or take so you? Curing. 
<laughs> or Durant. Yeah, so, yeah, Durant, sorry. Um, so I'm really interested in the Sagebrush Step, which is this, I, I mean, you live in it, but the Great Basin Desert, uh, cold desert that has the extremes of, in the winter, it can snow, in the summer, it can reach over 100, um, and it's just expansive sage, rolling Sagebrush Sea. And I'm, re- I'm really interested in this ecosystem, and a lot of the permitting issues that we had in our uh, dendrochronology project were uh, about sage grouse. You know, oh, this area could potentially have sage grouse, um, so you have to be careful about your destructive sampling. Um, and I'm like, sage grouse? What? I, like, I vaguely have heard about sage grouse as a uh, lost Angelino. And little did I know there was so much politics behind it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to start emailing professors and see if I can work with someone over the summer involving sage grouse. So I found um, I find someone at USGS, and I start emailing him. I'm like, hey, I study sagebrush. I'm interested in studying sage grouse from a perspective of the plant they eat because uh, sage grouse are sagebrush obligates, meaning that they require sage eating sagebrush leaves during certain times of the year as a part of their diet, so in order to survive. Um, more specifically, during the winter months, um, during like spring and summer, they eat like insects and flowers and seeds. So I, um, as soon as I was done with Ecuador, and even despite botfly, I was out in Nevada and Eastern California working with sage grouse, and I was doing things like tele- radio telemetry, um, analyzing their habitat by looking at um, different plant species that were living near their nest, um, or by their broods, or um, sometimes near their leks. But I was I got there a little late, like a little after they were lecking, uh, lecking for. Um, some of your listeners is when males will compete with one one each other for the attention of females and with sage grouse what that looks like is they'll do this funky dance um well they'll extend their um i don't know how to uh, there's a there's an ornithological term for it um but it's skipping, uh, skipping my mind but they, they, they look like big yellow breasts that they'll pump up and up and down and they'll make a really loud popping noise um and this dance along with this really loud noise attracts females to this lek and usually only about one or uh one or two males will mate with all the females that come to that lek so um i was a little late to that but what i did get to see were the baby sage grouse and the baby pronghorn antelope and just a ton of other baby animals and i got to spend um just most of my day out in the wilds, like looking for birds of prey, doing raptor raven surveys, um, following sage grouse, looking at the plants that they were interacting with, all the reptiles they're interacting with. It was just, it was spectacular. It's some of the most beautiful country in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sage grouse, aren't they in serious trouble right now? Yeah. So sage grouse are um, not endangered, which is. Tr- um, some people are working on trying to get them listed as endangered. Uh, they face a few threats. Um, one of them is uh, their habitat is being kind of chopped up by roads and power lines and tall structures, which sage grouse try to avoid because it brings predators. Um, another issue that sage grouse are going through is wildfires. Um, annual grasses that uh, cattle eat like oats and what are called bromes. Um, 
so these uh, cheatgrass is uh, a famous one. Uh, so these cattle are eating these sorts of grasses, and so these grasses are becoming more prolific in the West, and they're outcompeting sagebrush habitat, uh, and the they also dry uh, much faster and become fuel for fires. So these invasive grasses from Europe and Asia are fueling all these giant wildfires, which are really destroying sagegrass habitat. Um, so that, that's a big management issue that uh, people like BLM, USGS, uh, Forest Service, uh, ranchers, um, a lot of people are trying to tackle right now of how to keep these invasive grasses under control and to limit the amount of wildfires that are hurting sage-grass populations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, that is, yeah, <clears throat> they definitely need our help. And it's all about getting, you know, spreading the word and education and all the important work that you guys are doing out in the field. Yeah. Yeah. So what is currently, what is your end goal? Where do you see yourself? <laughs> where do you see the, the bot fly expert? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Um, I want to be a professor. I think uh, I find myself driven by uh, questions of conservation and where I want my research to go towards. Um, those kind of like tricky positions that have some politics to them, but that need to be looked at from a scientific um, perspective. So issues such as deforestation, issues such as invasive species, um, issues like um, contentious endangered species, like sage grouse. Um, we have a few invasive species here in Los Angeles and the Santa Monica Mountains. Um, uh, th- these are the sorts of things that drive what I'm interested in research-wise. Um, I and I just love talking uh, to the public about those sorts of things. So I find I'm teaching a, a class right now, an introductory biology peer facilitated learning course. Um, it's like slightly less than a lab course, and it's what they'll let an undergraduate teach. Um, but I'm really enjoying it, and that's the kind of thing that I love doing. It's just talking about biology with people that are enthusiastic about listening to it, uh, listening to me go on. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm currently also working with the National Park Service uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains uh, doing restoration ecology work, Um, and I'm really interested in that. And the National Park Service uh, is very science-oriented and science-driven, and a lot of the projects that they look um, towards for, like, graduates, uh, like, working with graduate students, um, they're really excited about that sort of thing. So I definitely think in 10 years that I've continued to be working with people in some sort of federal agency, be it the National Park Service or USGS, uh, getting like meaningful work done in terms of conservation for animals and plants. Yeah. Um, and I, I just love that. Looking at animals through a plant perspective because, and I really want to continue that. And my PI said it best, and PI is a primary investigator for some of your listeners. But... Um, if you want to study animals, study plants, because then you don't have to hurt the animals. A lot of animal researchers end up, um, you know, um, they may have to do tests on their animals, they may have to live capture their animals. But if you study plants and study animals from a plant perspective, you just work with plants. You don't really, you, you do work with animals, but really indirectly. Um, so I get to be a passionate animal person, but I also get to be a passionate, you know, plant person and just an ecologist overall. Uh, by doing what I do. And I hope to continue that into the future. Yeah, and I just want to put a point out. I actually had to take a lot of plant courses for my degree in biology just because, you know, my a lot of the animal courses were only offered, 
you know, every other year, and I was kind of on a timeline. And I'll tell you what, if you're not a plant person, but once you start learning about them, they are really interesting. Like plants, yeah, yeah like being able to talk to each other in any way. I learned a lot of interesting stuff, so. Yeah, um, one thing that, like, I hope that a professor, like, or someone just hears me talk about this, and they're like, I'm interested in that. Let's go for it. Um, there's this plant out in Southern California called creosote. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh-huh. It's like one of the longest living shrubs in the world. Like some of these, so one creosote uh, bush will grow and then it'll grow out a ring of other creosotes, but there'll be clones of the, that central one. And it'll continue this th- formation of a ring of creosote. Uh, for thousands of years. So the same clone of a creosote bush will be thousands of years old. Um, But what I'm interested in is because every time I go scorpion hunting, I look for scorpions on top of these creosote bushes. And I find them there. I call, I find the bark scorpions there all the time. So what my interest would be, would be studying the creosote and how the scorpions are either aiding in its growth or perhaps like reducing pollination or reducing herbivory on the creosote by just by living on it. So seeing if there's some sort of interaction between the scorpions and the creosote bush. Um, I've asked my current PI, and I don't think she's taking the bait. But someday someone's going to be interested in a scorpion slash shrub project, and I'm going to be all about it. <laughs> Dude, the sky's the limit, man. I mean, seriously, yeah. I, I, I find it interesting. You never yeah. know. Oh, I just uh, scorpions are just super cool. I just yeah, I've always uh, ever since I started learning about them, found them really interesting. But uh, op- I've, I've just gone with the opportunities that I've been given, and I'm just passionate about whatever I do. Really so quick, it, be, it, be it plants or anything else. Do you have a emperor scorpion? No. Um, and then there's like a bunch of like trade restrictions right now on emperor scorpions. Um. Yeah, like some sort of law just changed. Same with Asian four scorpions. Oh, wow. Um, that's why you can't find them in pet stores right now. Um, okay. Yeah, and I think they're... I, I could be wrong about that. I might have to double check, but if I if I remember correctly, there's some sort of issue right now going on with um, either catching them in the wild uh, or breeding them in captivity or some sort of combination of that. Um, the one that I have right now is uh, Hadrusus arizonensis, which is the uh, Arizona giant scorpion. But um, yeah, it's not right now. The, my my scorpion's like this big. It's oh, not man. like a few inches big, not very big. But I used to have one when I was when I was like in my teenage years. I had the best name for him. Do you want to know what his name was? What? Mr. Krabs. Mr. <laughs> I was a SpongeBob fan, you could tell. But but again, I think that was like when it was not legal to have them, or when it was legal to buy them. I think that's the issue. I think it's legal to have them, but it's there's a legality issue with um, buying them right now. I I'm pretty sure because you don't see them very often now. No, I haven't at all. And I'm wondering, and I and I could be completely wrong. And you obviously know more scorpions, uh, know more about scorpions than I do. But aren't the aren't the majority of the emperors wild caught? Wasn't that like an issue too? Yeah, they're all wild caught. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So th- there, there's a whole issue with 
that. And then especially from a conservation perspective, it's very hard to get a, an ugly animal like a scorpion listed in the Endangered Species Act. A butterfly, I mean, people want to save butterflies all day long. Like we have one in Los Angeles called the Palace Blue uh, Butterfly, beautiful butterfly. One of my lab mates is doing work um, restoring those populations in, near Lo uh, Long Beach. But um, if you were to try to declare a scorpion species an endangered species, good luck. I mean, not only do you have to prove that's, that the scorpion population you're working with is a species at all, but now you have to prove that its habitat is threatened, that um, that it could have ramifications against the uh, the rest of the ecosystem. I mean, it's just it's a really expensive endeavor, and people really tend to go more for the charismatic um, wildlife or flora, um, and something like a scorpion. Oh my gosh, it stings! Like it just. It's, it's hard to get funding for something like that. So, um, But in a lot of issues with um, scorpions are the pet trade. Uh, so people catching them, and because they won't breed in captivity. The other issues are habitat destruction. Um, and again, it's kind of hard to, you know, if there's no one to study these scorpions, how are you showing where their habitat is? And then um, once you have found the population of scorpions, how do you stop people from illegally harvesting them? And a lot of bug collectors tend to sometimes get a little overzealous with their collecting, and that could become an issue, too. If you declare something an endangered species, are we now setting it up to be over-collected and over-harvested? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, man, we've we've talked all across the board uh, during this interview, haven't we? Botflies, scorpions, <laughs> sagebrush, your research. Do you have any last-minute advice for listeners maybe wanting to pursue a career in the biological field? Yeah. Um, I Okay. I have a ton of advice. Um, one thing I would definitely suggest is reach out to people that have done it before you. So graduate students, uh, talk to people that are either zoologists, um, grad students, your professors, reach out to these people, tell them what you're interested in and just ask them general questions. What did you do? How did you get to where you're, where you're at? Um, what, you know, what schools did you go to? What, um, when you went to grad school, what, um, what sort of research were you doing? Just, just be nonstop in your search for knowledge. And when it comes to asking people questions about what they did, no questions, stupid. Like I've, I've honestly gotten so much good information. I wouldn't be studying GIS map making if I just didn't ask like, what do you regret not taking in school? And then people were like, well, I wish I learned how to program or I wish I learned how to make maps. And I'm like, cool. That's what I'm going to do next semester. That's what I did. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's not a dumb question. If it could potentially like take your career to the next level. Um, so that's that's one advice, piece of advice that I give to students um, a lot. The other would be um, just take care of yourself. Like make sure you're eating enough. Make sure you're sleeping enough. Um, on, on like I'm a big advocate on my own campus for um, like food insecurity because uh, in California State Universities, 40% of undergraduate students are food insecure. Um, that means they either go hungry once a month or multiple times a month uh, from lack of nutrition, and that's like. It's pretty inexcusable. I mean, are you're expecting these students to be the next innovators, the next scientists, the the new, the brightest, the newest in the job market? Um, they should at least be fed yeah. <laughs> if they're going to get to that point. Um, especially in an urban city like Los Angeles, where housing is so expensive. Um, 
So uh, look at resources around campus, not only for food pantries, but um, for taking care of your medical necessities. Like in field research, there's tons of boo-boos and owies and just stuff goes wrong all the time. And like, I would know, like the butterfly thing. Um, <laughs> so like making sure that you're like, you're healthy, you're eating enough, you're sleeping enough, that you're actually ready to go into the next day to take an exam or that you're ready to go take your GRE or you're ready to apply for grad school. Like you just have to be mentally there. And if you're not there, then um, find resources to help you get to that point. Um, so it, almost more so than your career, you, you and your health are probably more important. Um, so that's my advice. That's very interesting. A very interesting take. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th- no, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I honestly learned so much and I'm happy where <laughs> I'm serious. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have to learn that the, the bot fly thing is really interesting for people. Um, sometimes I'm a little like, I, I, I don't believe I went through it myself. Um, and I know people have like a real fascination with um, like popping videos and stuff like that. So I forget that it's a whole cultural phenomena as well. Um, and like my mom tried sending me all those videos and everyone's like, did you see this and this related to this or why you, and I'm just like, no, ignorance is bliss. Don't want to hear it. Um, so, yeah, dude, I'm like replaying it. The, the video in my head, like <laughs> it will never get out of your head, Richard. It will uh, never, don't, don't ever look at it. It'll freak you yeah, out. I won't. Yeah. Okay. I won't. Well, <laughs> I'm going to go look at it after this interview. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you? Your Instagram handle again? Yeah, um, and I can send this, uh, I can message you this as well, but it's A underscore wandering underscore ecologist. Um, Yeah, the Instagram is usually what I post. I post a lot of, like, restoration ecology pictures and flowers and animals around Southern California. So that's mostly what I do. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.